Alexander Zivodzinovich. Uh, Alexander, sit down. It's like Please. the Russian guy. I'm not coming today. No, no computer problem. No service today for my laundry. It's still not fixed. <laughs> Been fucking two weeks. Welcome to Backtracking, the show where two old friends take a second listen to influential bands catalogs track by track. I'm Roth Bagdasarian. And I'm Dan Fiden. We'll be taking this journey together, providing context, both personal and historical, on some legendary bands. For our first season, we've picked none other than the Canadian power trio, Rush. Today I'm backtracking Rush, the first step on what will become a long journey covering 19 original studio albums released over the course of five decades. But first, we're going to set the proverbial stage by discussing the history of the Canadian power trio. Singer, bassist, and keyboardist Getty Lee was born back in 1953 in Ontario, Canada. His birth name is Gershon Weinrib, but he was given the nickname Getty because that's how his mom, an Eastern European Holocaust survivor, pronounced the anglicized version of his name, Gary. Getty co-founded Rush with his fellow schoolmate Alex Lifeson after a few previous iterations of the band, some of which omitted Lee altogether. Alex was also born in 1953 to immigrant parents and was given the name Alexander Zivajinovich, which roughly translates in English to the name he uses today. Alex and Getty played together informally throughout school, but most Rush historians attribute the founding of the band to 1968, when Lee and Lifeson joined with drummer John Rutsey and guitarist-singer Jeff Jones as Hadrian. Lee was eventually tossed from that band, but even after that stinging rebuke would eventually team up again with Lifeson and Rutsey as Rush. The original trio would stick together through the recording of the band's eponymous debut in 1974. After a short stint on the road supporting the debut album, Rutsey left the band and was replaced by Neil Peart just weeks before the band was set to embark on their first major tour. The elder Peart, born in 1952, was from St. Catharines, Ontario. At just 18, Peart left his home for London with hopes of making it as a musician, but returned to Canada disappointed after a year and a half. Within days of returning home, however, Rush's manager, that son of a bitch Ray Daniels, paid him a visit and asked him to audition for Rush. The trio clicked instantly. The classic Peart Lee Lifeson lineup would remain unchanged for the band's entire career to date. Over the course of that amazing career, the band sold more than 42 million records worldwide, making them one of the top 100 selling artists in U.S. history. They've had 17 albums certified platinum in the U.S., and in 2013 were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Over their 41-year career, Rush developed a reputation as one of rock music's most technically capable and influential bands. They maintained a productive and uniquely undramatic working relationship, despite astonishing personal hardships, including the death of Peart's wife and daughter within the span of a single year. Peart died of brain cancer in January of 2020 at the age of 67. Over the span of this amazing career, Rush watched as the music industry transitioned from vinyl to 8-track to cassette to CD, and then to digital downloads and streaming. They recorded their first album on Analog 8, 
And they're last on an unlimited number of pure digital tracks. When they began the band, tape delays and echo units were common, and the cutting edge of instrument technology was the Minimoog analog synthesizer. But they adapted, adopted, and evolved much better, and for much longer than nearly any band in history. Rush eras. I mean, Rush, like most great bands, can be broken into eras, right? I mean, it's called progressive rock for a reason. So, Dan... Uh, or does it regress, Roth? <laughs> I guess that's the hot topic that we're going to have to discuss here. In some cases. I mean, if you like what you get, you know, day one, you might as well stick with it, like the Rolling Stones, for example, right? But... Um, this is an incredibly interesting topic to me, actually. I think there are some bands that kind of burst forth fully formed and never really progress but that's okay because boston. like they're so unique and so different i i who did you say boston i said boston <laughs> boston that's boston is not exactly what i was i was actually thinking of um now it's it's probably difficult to compare a band like rush that you know over the course of their career did 20 something you know studio records but a band that one of the bands that i always think of that kind of came out fully formed never really changed and that was okay because it was really interesting and good um is morphine do you remember morphine oh yeah 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 That's morphine just player, kind of, of the first record was not all that different than the third record yeah and you know there are some that are you know a little bit better than others but basically it was the same stuff and, and i I should say about Boston. I mean, it was a stroke of genius on Tom Schultz's part, right? So it's like I don't mean to be knocking Boston, but Boston was Boston. You got what you got. Yeah. So, so now, this episode is is specifically about Russia's eras. I know that when we embarked upon this podcast, you know, there was a little bit of debate: should we do this? Should we not? Should we do it at the end? Should we do it at the beginning? But after we recorded um, our first official episode that we recorded, which is episode two, the the Rush uh, inaugural album, um, we realized, yeah, we should probably set up um, the the podcast series with a discussion about the various eras of Rush. And you've done some more homework on this than I have, and you put together a playlist, which I've yet to hear what is on your playlist for this first era. So why don't you, uh, why don't you, why don't you sock it to me? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the playlist that I made for era one, but do you want to talk about what we're defining as the eras first? And then, well, I'll, I'll talk about the first era, how I define the first era, and then I'll, and then I'll give you my playlist. We will link the playlist, uh, in Spotify in case, you know, as you are doing your homework for listening to the next, um, four or five episodes that we do you, uh, if you don't, if you don't feel like you're quite ready to dive in and listen to every track on every record, which is certainly what I hope you'll do. This is at least a pretty good primer. So the way that I approach the eras is really quite conventional among rush fans. Um, I think that there is a, uh, general framework that people use. And I think is, um, at least from what I can tell from cruising the rush subreddit and things like that is, is the, is probably the most common way of kind of framing their career, um, rush in the early days. And by early, I really mean the first 15 records or so 15 studio records, um, had a pattern where they would do four records, four studio albums, and then a live album. And those four studio albums followed by the live album also pretty neatly um, encapsulate 
what they're doing musically, lyrically, kind of stylistically, instrumentally. Um, and, and so that's really the, I, I think that that is kind of the most effective framework for how to look at their, uh, their era. So the first mm-hmm. era I refer to as the bell bottoms era, this is the very early part of their career in the mid seventies. This is kind of the early beginnings of rush as kind of this prog metal, uh, seventies band. Um, so, so I would call the bell bottom era, the eponymous 1974 album rush, uh, 1975's fly by night, which is the first album that features Neil Peart, uh, 1975's caress of steel, 1976's 21, 12, which is really kind of the breakout for rush. Certainly the breakout is kind of a, a well-loved prog band. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the kind of period at the end of that era sentence is 1976's live album, all the world's a stage. Um, I think, which, that- which if I recall, you know, cause it was, a, there was a video of it and you can find a lot of these videos on YouTube. All the world's a stage was they, they weren't like they were, they looked pretty, normal on stage like they weren't you know they weren't yeah. in their their as you call them the the space, <laughs> yeah, kimonos. The, the space kimonos so i think really as you get to kind of 2112 and right after 2112 they start to really embrace a slightly more glammy kind of yes inspired prog rock look if you think about john anderson in the mm-hmm. mid to late 70s wearing you know caftans and all kinds of stuff like that rush started to adapt a style that was a little bit like that in the in the at the really the height of their prog era which i'll talk about in a second and but speaking the of yes era, i actually just saw them last uh last week and i was i was talking with their manager after the show and i gave him my proposed rush eras and he's a canadian and yeah. uh he 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 thought it was uh he agreed with it to some degree so uh, we'll, we'll get to those in a bit yeah, I, I think that, but, but anyway, that first era, the bell bottoms era, this is, you know, the kind of bell bottom jeans and t-shirts, you know, classic seventies metal rock music, um, kind of a look. I, I think of this, this era, here are a few of the things that I think are kind of the hallmarks of this era. It is the last era of what I describe as fun rush lyrics. Um, after Neil Peart really kind of like, you know, squeezes Getty and, and Alex completely out of the kind of uh, lyric writing in almost all situations and gets a little bit more heavy. The, the, you, you don't hear that many songs that are kind of like, hey, baby, you know, I like your style, like 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 you see in some of the earlier um, earlier rush albums this is a very led zeppelin influenced era i think it's very difficult to argue that it isn't this is really the height of the zeppelin influence for for the band well so in your in your uh, bell bottoms era is the very last studio album in that era that's caress caress of steel right no it's 2112 2112 is in the bell bottom. Okay. Yeah. It's in the bell bottoms era, but okay. I mean, it is kind of like, you know, it's obviously a transitional record, but I think it's the end of the bell bottom era, okay. very zap influence, but they're beginning to find Prague. You know, the songs are getting a little bit more technically complex, a little bit longer. Um, and you definitely are starting to see the kind of stereotypical 1970s fantasy, sci-fi, fable lyrical content. Um, it is a very guitar forward era. Um, there's a, it, it really is um, 
Alex shines in this era in this era in my in, in my opinion and um this era i think from a production perspective is pretty raw and it's terry brown so terry mm-hmm. brown is a longtime collaborator producer of rush he kind of got co-producer credits with rush for for every album from fly by night through the end of this era through 2112 mm-hmm. he he was um he was involved uh, as an engineer on the first rush record, if I'm not mistaken, but he didn't get a producer credit. He, he did get producer and arranger credits on fly by night onward. Um, and I think this is a, this is a, this is a, this is a record that I think is really the, the, the first record where you very neatly can kind of fit them in with some of the contemporaries that people, you know, generally think of, um, Genesis, uh yes yeah like the, the cl- kind of classic british uh prog music that was you know a few years prior to rush but definitely contemporaries and and maybe a little bit influential yeah and so i think that this era is um yeah this is really the band kind of finding its way to use <laughs> to to kind of use a a, a rush song reference um mm-hmm. they're they're i think discovering their musicality they're developing their technical prowess and they're getting very interested in pushing that to kind of the outer limits and i also think neil peart is just kind of really spreading his wings in a kind of a it's the rangiest youngest sounding neil peart lyrics through through this era well Uh, you know what if you look at a lot of the lyrics in in many of the songs from this first era these first few albums it's a lot of it is about being on the road and being away like for the first time so it seems that if if we're looking at the context of what the band what was going on in the band's lives and how it influenced their music a lot of it was like you know journeymen wanderers i mean even like if you look at like the you know the the three travelers men of willowdale emerge from the forest shadows right it's yeah. it's very much about we're we're on our own finding our way right um yeah you know eyes and, looking and back it, from the window beside I think that I think that um, really reflects the practical reality of the band. I mean, this is an incredibly productive couple of years. But what's amazing to me is it really is only a couple of years. The first Rush album, yeah, titled, yeah. came out in March of '74. The last studio record in this era came out in March of '76. So that's four records, four studio records. And they were touring essentially nonstop in between all of these records. So the, the, the albums were recorded in, you know, two, three, four weeks. I think, I think I, I remember reading that, um, 2112 was a three week studio time. Well, what uh, do we know about the songwriting record. process? I mean, were they writing in the studio? Were they recording demos? Were they, were they recording or writing songs while they were on the road? Do we know much about this era of what their songwriting process was? So again, I'm not uh, that the, the, I'm not going to, um, claim to be the most perfect rush historian, but from what I've read, most of these songs were kind of worked out while they were on the road. Um, they were jamming and during sound checks and hotel rooms. There's, um, a lot of, from what, from what I remember reading, there's a, a lot of, uh, 20, uh, 2112 that was worked out on a little pig nose amp. Um, between Alex and Getty while they were just on the road in hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they'd book studio time, knock it out and, and hit the road again. Um, 
but I mean, this is, you know, this is rush in their twenties getting, you know, just getting, being single, just getting married. They're on the road all the time. They're really working hard. And it's, it, it, honestly, it's, it's, this era is interesting because the progression from the first rush album to 2112, I think is staggering. And I don't think there's any other era of rush that uh, shows that much progression. Next, next era, at least in, 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 in my framing and what I, again, I think is the most common framing is what I call space kimonos. It's 1977 to 1981. This is the height of rush at its kind of prog rock stereotypicalness. There is some amazing records in here, but this is really kind of the, um, I think for people who find prog rock and in particular gen one prog rock, you know, again, yes, Genesis, some of that stuff, find it to be a little bit, you know, silly. I think this is in some ways the, the era that most perfectly fits into that stereotype. But, but in my assessment, I think some of the best records that Rush ever made are, are in this era. So it starts with, uh, September 1977 when they release a farewell to Kings. Mm-hmm. October 78 hemispheres January 1980 um permanent waves comes out and then in February of 81 moving pictures comes out and they kind of end this era with the release in October of 1981 of Exit Stage Left another live record yeah legendary live record and and one of the things um uh, to point out if if you're not familiar with Rush or this era uh, if you just Google search uh, Rush Kimonos, uh, you have plenty of imagery that will uh, crystallize in your head uh, what we're talking about. There is a uh, an old interview uh, where they asked, you know, where did the space kimonos come from? Or the kimonos. I don't think they call them space kimonos, but I think they are from outer space. Is It was they were traveling. They were on the road, and I guess they were on the West Coast um, and trying to figure out, did they have a style, what their style was? And again, very much influenced by what was going on culturally in pop culture at the time that you kind of had to have this, this style, like some sort of, you know, stake in the ground as to who you were. They found these kimonos in a store in San Francisco and that's how they, uh, that's how they adopted it. Yeah. It is really the, it, this look is something else. Um, I, I think not only are the kimonos amazing, but Neil Peart's mustache during this era is absolutely epic. It is an amazing it is. mustache. It goes with the kimono incredibly poorly, but they, they, they stuck with it. And, and, um, so I think a few things are kind of hallmarks of this, of this era. The first thing that I think is super, super important, the introduction of Moogs. Uh, the, the a farewell, the Kings is the first time the Taurus pedals show up and the first time the mini mood shows up, or at least from, from, from what I can tell mm-hmm. and just expanded instrumentation much more generally. You see Neil Peart playing a lot more things like timpani and bells and, you know, marimba or, or, or vibes or whatever it is. And I think all of the, all of the members of rush start to noodle with, um, instruments that are not their core instrument. Yeah, I, I think another, another like a subtitle for this era could be the expanding kit era too. Not not just the the drum kit, but also Getty's uh, his synthesizers. Yeah, I mean, I just think that the the, the overall amount of um, 
amount going on in these songs really gets to be kind of staggering. Um, the it is you know to to the point that you just made in some ways roth um i think of this as their the apex of rush as a technically proficient band musically proficient band and a structurally complex band and i would actually pinpoint in my opinion i think that the song where that hits its zenith is la villa strangiato Okay. I, 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 I see where you're coming from. I think in this era, I I'm going to add a little conflict and drama. Okay. To this. I Good. would disagree. I, like I would say the, the like peak rush in terms of complexity, in terms of showcasing the, like the, 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 the just the depth and breadth of what they're capable of actually comes on the um, power windows album. I'll, I'll, I'll discuss that really? track when we get to that album, but oh, I love there's, it. there's a track on power windows, which I think is like, if if you had to like put rush into a single song uh this is the song and it's not a it's not it's a deeper catalog track it's not yeah. it's not um uh it's not uh, like tom sawyer i can't wait to hear about it rough yeah. um but I, so la villa um I, there's 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 some there's some interviews and things out there where they talk about the recording of la villa specifically they they decided that they wanted to record that song in a single take and did they and the, in the end, they failed. In the end, they had to kind of cut in a couple of sections of the song. But their attempts to record that song in a single take took longer than the entire Caress of Steel album took to record. <laughs> Which I think is just you know pretty amazing dedication, yeah. So anyway, I just think it's a this is this is really kind of the height of them at their proggiest. Um, lyrically, it is also I think the most out there in terms of classic prog tropes. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly some songs that are a little bit more grounded, but generally speaking, I think they go the furthest into outer space, kind of figuratively and literally. In... Well, like when when Getty's singing like a spiral sea. <laughs> Right, yeah, I mean, like hemis that. hemispheres, um, permanent waves. These are some very out there records lyrically. Um, well, and, and 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 maybe we could talk a little bit briefly about the album art too. I mean, the album art too gets very surreal at this time uh, too. It it does. I actually, I, I'm glad that you brought up album art, Roth. Um, I I would to go back to um, the first era uh for a second i think the album art across the first era of rush is pretty bad um generally i think that, that there's a there's a, a famous story about caress of steel which is i think when we get into the individual album we'll talk about this more it's a it's not it's not a particularly well-loved or respected rush record but one of the things about the record is when they originally designed the album art it was supposed to have a metallic silver printing on it mm -hmm. and the printing got screwed up and so it came out kind of this like Bronzy. gold yellow and they just never fixed it um but it doesn't make any sense that it's this kind of gold you know metallic album cover when the name of the the album is caresses <laughs> yeah anyway i, I think there's a lot it, yeah. of there's, I, I heard that story before, but I never, I never connected the name of the album to the fact that it's not steel colored. 
Yeah, I just think that the 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 album covers in the first era are are, are not great. They're in some cases they're bad, in some cases they're okay, like twenty one twelve, but they're never great. I think in in the second Space Kimonos era, some really cool album covers. I think a Farewell the Kings is a great album cover. Actually, Roth, there's a Buffalo connection. Rafi and I both grew up in Buffalo, New York. The the photo on the cover of A Farewell the Kings was a composite photo. And the there's a there's kind of a distro, uh, a construction, like a demolition site. And there's a man, uh, a jester sitting in a uh a chair. Uh the jester that that was shot elsewhere, but the demolition site, the whole the whole kind of wasteland was shot in Buffalo. That was uh that was a site in downtown Buffalo. That was, was it really? Yeah. Yeah. Um so Feral the King's great, great cover. Um Permanent Waves, I think, is a, a very good cover. Yeah. And Moving Pictures, I think, is a great cover. Hemispheres, I'm not as big a fan of that cover. Um, but it does feature a uh, naked man's ass, the mm-hmm. second Rush album to feature a naked man ass. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think you could do a whole episode on just naked man, right? Uh, the, <laughs> the the main. Well, I mean, think about it. It's it's like it's the he's the icon of Rush. You know, the star with the circle with the naked man in it, right? He he makes a couple of appearances, then he just sort of disappears. Yeah, like where did he go? Well, are we sure he disappeared or did he put clothes on and then maybe he's the same guy that's moving the he, pictures in the in the on the cover of moving pictures? Well, he progressed. He found it's clothes. Just <laughs> like Rush. So anyway, I think that I think that um uh your your point is good. There's some really good album covers in in this era. Um it is as it, it's the first era where they recorded outside of Canada. So as soon as they got a little bit of success, being very influenced by a lot of the kind of first wave prog bands, which really mostly were from uh, from the UK, they made the decision to go and record outside of uh, outside of Ontario, basically, um, for the first time. And they they recorded um, a Farewell to Kings Hemispheres. I'm not sure about Permanent Waves, but the first two albums in this were recorded in Wales. Um, so I think that's a difference The the band is, um, you know, ha- has a little bit more scope because of their commercial success. Well, and, um, I know, and I know we, we, I know they admired bands like, you know, yes. And Genesis, but they also listened to a lot of like post-punk music around this time too. Right. That's something that I know Neil Peart talks about a lot, um, or talked about a lot. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to forget that, you know, these prog rock, legends are are listening to stuff other than prog yeah. rock and being yeah, by it. it's totally true they talk a, they talk a lot about the influence of the police in a, in a, in, a, in particular in in a number of different places talking heads and I think, as well yeah. yeah and i think as you as you get toward the end of this era moving pictures in particular i mean moving pictures is really the transitional album um a couple of things happen. You start to see significantly shorter songs, significantly more direct lyrics and personal lyrics, I would argue. I think that melodically, these are um, more melodically upfront songs towards the end of this era. And digital recording actually shows up for the first time um, in this era with moving pictures. It's the first time the the band ever recorded digitally. Yeah, if you're traveling through space, um, you gotta you gotta use computers. So it just makes sense. Yeah, it's true. But the you know the the 48 track digital um, recording that they did um, 
in moving pictures apparently caused some delays for them um, and was a little bit of a struggle, but something that they absolutely embraced in the next era. Wait, was, 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 was moving pictures recorded digitally? Yeah. Are you sure? Cause I thought the first album to be recorded digitally was yes. Union in 1990. Yeah. So um, moving pictures, um, f- first 48 track recording and also the first using digital um roth you made a you you, you, we were talking about um yes the first kind of pure digital recording Um, yeah union was the first from what i understand the first time uh an album was recorded to hard disk so digital is obviously very broad right so in in power windows or moving pictures rather um it was recorded 48 track analog from what we understand but it was mastered to digital three-quarter inch tape so yes, digital, not hard drive. It's yeah. funny because today we think, you know, when you're recording digitally, it's going to hard drive, of course. Right. Uh, but yeah. it's very different. We forget that there was digital tape, digital tape. Yeah, sure. That was what Roth when, when you and I were in uh, high school and recording the height of technology for us was that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, right? that. I mean, it's all ones and zeros. That's what's important. So, um, anyway, I think, I think though the through line here is by the end, you know, both at the beginning of this era and at the end of the era, you see Rush really embracing technology, embracing new technology from the, from the kind of Taurus paddles and the, and the Moogs and kind of early synths to, you know, new recording techniques and new, new, they're really kind of becoming gearheads in a way that is not as noticeable in the first era. Um, But that takes us very kind of cleanly into 82 to 87, which I refer to as the skinny ties era. This is, um, this is stylistically, I think aesthetically, this is, we see some haircuts, Neil all of a sudden uh, cuts his hair pretty short. Um, Getty starts to move towards the schlong kind of look. Um, and, uh, as does, as does Alex and they lose the kimonos and they start to dress much more like m- most of the kind of early eighties, new wave bands that I think they were really influenced by, yeah. um, during this era. Um, so the first record here is 1982 signals, um, yeah, followed by April of 84 grace under pressure October of 1985 power windows and the final studio album in this era in, 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 um, the skinny ties era is September 87 hold your fire. And the live album that kind of caps this one off is, uh, 1989's a show of hands. Yeah. So, so sorry, go ahead, Roth. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say grace under pressure, I believe was the first, uh, album they did without Terry Brown. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the change in producers. So this is, this album is the end of the Terry Brown era. Yeah. Um, and they, and they actually have a couple of different producers. The first one that they move on to from Terry Brown is Peter Henderson. Um, who is Peter Henderson? Uh, that, I had the same question. Who is this Peter Henderson guy and why did they end up with him? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Um, so the first thing is they originally approached, uh, or, or had some conversations with Trevor Horn, uh, Trevor Horn at this, at, at this time was in the band. Yes. But he actually spent a very short period of time taking over for John Anderson as the singer of Yes. He was only in Yes for a couple of years. He was in uh, the Buggles. 
Yeah, he, yeah. he was best known for Video Killed the Radio Star of the Buggles. But Trevor Horn went on to be an incredibly influential producer. And, and some people, um, especially kind of in the UK kind of music industry, will say that Trevor Horn invented the 80s. He was involved with a lot of really oh, yeah. influential early 80s kind of uh, I, I want to say he, he certainly ushered it in with with mtv right <laughs> Video yeah so he, he was he was involved if you if you look up trevor horn he was involved in a lot of a lot of really interesting bands that actually hold together with the buggles much better than his than the fact that he was in yes for a couple of years and he and he produced um rush but peter peter so so they approached trevor horn that it, it didn't work out right away um, they ended up selecting Peter Henderson, who was his probably he worked with wings. He worked with Paul McCartney pretty consistently over the course of Paul McCartney's post Beatles career. Um, but I think the album that he produced that kind of stuck out to me as perhaps most important in, and I don't know this, but it, it seems like it could have been important in Russia's decision was he produced breakfast, uh, breakfast in America by Supertramp, which is an amazing record. Yeah kind of an American somewhat prog album. That's uh pretty contemporary to this era and a, and a great sounding album in my opinion. So well, Peter, and, had and I, and I think that's important. So if you look at signals and grace under pressure, they're, they're clearly a very transformational era in rush where they move more towards synths and whatnot. And I think it's easy to say that, you know, the absence of Terry Brown brought them into that synthase, but there there's enough, of consistency, especially with the use of synthesizers, the change of songwriting between signals and, and grace under pressure, grace under pressure that I think indicate that it was the band driving that change, not the producers. Like if you look at like Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir, what they did with U2 with like the unforgettable fire, vastly different U2. And I think that the producers had way more of an imprint on a band like U2 than they did necessarily on rush. So I think the producer was almost like a, a fourth team member, not the one sort of steering the ship, which I think is an important thing to to note when it comes to Rush, how much they were very much involved with their progression. Yeah, and I and I really do think when you look at the transitional albums like Moving Pictures, you can you can see a direction that they're going. Um, so I, I, I do think that, that it, it, it's pretty evident when you listen to the albums in sequence that it isn't necessarily producer driven. Instead, they found producers that they felt like would be a good match for the direction that they wanted to go. So yeah, they started, I think it was, uh, 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 Rick Rubin, right. Who I know when you think music producer, you think Rick Rubin, but one of the things he said that I think really crystallized, you know, the role of a producer, um, that he, he just articulated it very well. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, you know, the producer is the advocate for the audience, right? They're really there to make sure that what's going down, what's being mixed, how the, the band's recording, that it's something that listeners want to hear. So they're, they're really sort of that, uh, sort of eyes from outside, making sure giving sort of perspective to what they're doing. And I think that, you know, the, the Rush's producers writ large have been very good at doing that. So, yeah, Roth, I think that, that, um, there are there are definitely different types of uh, when i think of producers i think there are there are different types of producers right there are purely kind of technical enabler producers there are the the rick rubin type of um maybe audience advocate guru type producers and then there are 
producers that tend to take on quite or, or seem to take on quite a bit of authorship and and influence the band musically in a very noticeable way um i think the most the the producer that that i think of um that's a good example of this is john bryan um if you know if you know john bryan he 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 has produced a number of kind of more indie singer songwriter albums although he's been involved in in records um by people like mac miller this like rapper um but like you know worked with elliot smith worked with fiona apple and and his the albums that he worked on tend to have a a john bryan feel like there's instrumentation there's arrangement it really feels like it's almost as much a john bryan album as it is the original artist um and so you can look at his catalog, although it's kind of across different artists and there's a lot of similarities. Kind of like a David Foster too. I mean, use undeniably David Foster if he's produced, produced something. Yeah. I, but I, but I think brush, there isn't really that, that isn't really present uh, across their career. The, the producers kind of come and go. And I think they, they use certain producers in certain eras, but I don't really think you can attribute too much of what's happening with the band and their sound to the producer. Um, obviously this is my own kind of fan speculation, but that's, that's the way I feel. Well, and, and that's exactly what I was saying is that it's the band that's driving the progression of, of rush yeah. of the music. Exactly. And then the, the last uh, to, to kind of uh, put a period on the end of the producer conversation, Peter Collins uh, comes in, in into the fold uh, for the first time during this era. Peter Collins, prior to working with Rush, really not a lot of big producer credits. The, the, the biggest producer credits that I could see that were recognizable were actually Tracy Ullman, who went on to be kind of a comedian. Um, that's what I wait, know. Wait, she, wait, she was produced what? She records apparently Tracy Ullman was like a singer or something. And I, I don't know anything about it, but Peter Collins produced a number of records from her in yeah. the kind of late seventies, early eighties that I have never heard a bit about, but that, that seems it could have been like skit comedy. I, I don't know. I mean, she's talented, multi-talented, so I can, I could see that, but uh, it's surprising. Who, who knows? But Peter Collins really kind of is, um, is works with rush during quite a bit during this this era and their next era and where um, does this one end this ends in uh so uh, this ends with uh hold your fire and then a show of hands is the live album so 1989 well, um, so hold your fire interesting because amy mann makes an appearance on that too Amy Mann makes an appearance, which is, I think, you know, um, fitting given their interest in kind of new wave and popular yeah. music, electronic yeah. music at this time. Um, but this is, as you said, Rafi, probably the most defining characteristic in this in this era is that keyboards really take the lead um, in terms of instrumentation from guitar. And mm -hmm. this is really kind of across the board. uh, uh a keyboard driven era in my opinion and one that actually caused quite a bit of friction from what i understand between alex lifeson and getty lee um mm -hmm. it's also you know you hear a lot of reggae influence and a lot of uh police influence in this in this era and a lot of world music influence um and and you also just i think see uh an end of all of the typically stereotypically prog rock type lyrics there's no more fables no more stories about being in in space and things like that this is really a much more kind of the pendulum human, has swung 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there's no better illustration of that. And maybe this is a good segue, segue into the next era, other than that, the fact that this era that you, you labeled the skinny tie era ends with the song Taishan, which, which is, which even like by Rush's own mission is just like, what the fuck? Where really, did that come from? Not, not, we, we, we'll, we'll talk about that one in detail when we yeah. get to Hold Your Fire. Um, so next era, 1989 to 1997 um or 1998 uh is what i call the black tees era this is really rush getting back into making guitar driven rock music metal almost you know metal prog metal music um light metal music i don't know how you want to describe it but this is this is guitar driven music so it starts with 1989's presto um 1991 roll the bones 1993 counterparts 1996 well, I, test for echo and then it ends with 1998's live album different stages so and i think this is an important thing because we, we, we want to bring some personal context into this uh discussion this was the first album this era begins with presto which was the first rush album to come out while we were in high school right which is right. which is a pretty formative time to buy an album listen to an album and i do remember you know that the first rush album that i was like a rush fan that i recall coming out was hold your fire right where i was aware of rush i had a bunch of albums it was the first one where yep. you know i waited in line for tickets to go see the concert yeah. like but that was in middle school but it was in high school when presto came out and i remember it was a pretty big deal um yeah. that was made that this is rush's return to guitar driven rock yeah. Rafi, I remember. Uh, so this is, you know, um, uh, again, on the personal level, this is, we really had become very good friends. We're starting to kind of play music together. Um, I, my recollection is that we went, we, we saw Rush prior to Presto coming out on the, what would have been Hold Your Fire tour. Yeah. Um, I remember listening to a show of hands, the like t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like th that was really the, the, this was the high point of my rush fandom was right in the, you know, eighth grade, ninth grade kind of area. Um, I absolutely loved them. And so when Presto came out, I remember the same thing a tremendous amount of anticipation. I remember there was a lot of discussion about how much different this, um, record was than, than kind of the, the previous three or four records. Um, it really does sound and feel substantially different than, than the previous, um, than the previous, uh, four, four studio albums. I will also say though, this towards the end of this era, this is where Rush kind of lost me. And I think that that was both a reflection of kind of my age and evolving musical tastes, kind of getting ready to graduate from high school, graduating from high school and getting into a very, very, I, I got into a very, very different type of music uh, around that time. Um, and so as we go through album by album and do our re-listen, I really, you know, don't, I know counterparts. I've probably listened to counterparts, you know, a handful of times in my life. I have never listened to test for echo and I have never listened to any of the subsequent albums after it. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of experiencing <laughs> those for the first time, especially because I know the other, whatever, 15 rush albums. So, so well, like the back of my hand. Yeah. No, and, and again, the counterparts, uh, Test for Echo, 
happened in in college, right? Um, and same thing for me. I, it, if you look at what was going on musically at the time, so in the summer before uh, 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 Presto came out, I recall it vividly, right? We'd we'd be jamming in your garage or hanging out in your your basement bedroom and watching MTV, and it'd be like Great White and you know yeah. Motley Crue or Aerosmith, you know, in that later era for the, a lot of those bands. And it was very hair metal-y kind of like, yeah. you know, it was kind of like peak hair metal time. Yeah. Like it, it was, it was, it was what was giving birth to grunge, right. In the Pacific Northwest where people were like, we, we get, we need something different. Um, I think throughout high school, um, these rush albums for me were sort of like a, um, a, a, a salvation from what was happening in the mainstream music at the time. Uh, and I listened to them a lot. Yeah. But when college hit, uh, grunge was in full swing. Now, granted, I know we, we went to different geographies, uh, for, for that time of our lives, but I stayed in, in Western New York. And at the time, um, what really grabbed me was, uh, CFNY and what was happening on the Canadian music scene, which was very distinct and separate from what was happening on like K rock, let's say, or in the grunge scene in the United States. Yeah. So I was, I was, I, fully went into like, you know, Tea Party, Sarah McLaughlin, Bare Naked Ladies, yeah. Our Lady Peace, right? A lot of those bands that were coming yeah. out of Canada, which were, you know, from Russia's home turf. And, you know, CFNY was was supposedly um it was uh, CFNY that Neil Peart was was referring to in the spirit of radio. You know, begin the yeah. day with a friendly voice was, you know, CFNY DJs. So so that's when I sort of started to get pulled away from Rush and into what was happening in in Canada at the time, most more specifically. It, it's not it's not it, it's it's kind of interesting um as as i read through you know lots of information about rush and preparing to kind of do this with you um one of the things that struck me was them talking about when they were about that age 18 you know late teens and they were starting to play in bands and stuff they would drive from toronto to buffalo to get the cool stuff they would have to drive to buffalo to buy beetle boots um yeah is one thing that I said. And, and so for them, Buffalo was kind of the gateway to the American and UK kind of pop music scene and style scene that they didn't get as much in Canada. Whereas yeah. I think when you and I, when you and I grow up, Buffalo was really in a lot of ways, economically hollowed out and a real backwater and Toronto was like yeah. the closest big, cool city. And so we would, when we would want to kind of experience something that was cool and felt a little bit more cosmopolitan, we would end up driving up to Toronto. Yeah. Or even Fort Erie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Different kind <laughs> of culture. Falls. But um, no, and, and also the drinking age was, was a couple of years <laughs> younger. So that made it a lot easier for, for a couple of 19 year olds to, to go get some beers. And, and and so to just kind of finish off the eras for me again, as I said, I can't really describe these records um, stylistically. Um, so I'm I'm really kind of leveraging the work of lots of different people, smart Rush fans on the internet. I, I would say so stylistically. What I recall from this era was very crisp, clean, but guitar driven. So yes, it was a return to the guitar driven music of early Rush, but it wasn't as uh, analog. It was, it was definitely more digital, definitely mastered for CDs, uh, definitely very crisp, uh, very clean kind of sound like the drums. Uh, that's, that's what I recall, um, from this era. I think that now we haven't gotten to the next era, but when you get to, 
um, uh, vapor trails, again, the pendulum goes in the complete opposite direction so much so that they had to remaster that album. Right. Yeah. Which, again, we'll get, we'll get to that. That's a whole other story in and of itself. But, um, this era, uh, definitely, I think crisp, clean return to guitar driven rock. Um, but in a, in a much more contemporary sort of adult contemporary kind of style. Yeah. I, I think that those last three records, so this is, um, this is 2002's Vapor Trails, 2007's Snakes and Arrows, and 2012's Clockwork Angels, which worked out to be the final uh, Rush album, or at least it looks like it's going to be the final Rush album, studio yeah. album. Um, those those albums, I think, um, are you can kind of bucket them into their own era. I, I think that the way to think about those records, or at least the way that I think about those records, is... This is Rush has kind of achieved everything it wants to achieve. Neil Peart's going through a lot of personal turmoil uh, with the loss of his daughter and wife. The band takes a number of kind of extended breaks during this era. Mm -hmm. And I think that these albums are them getting together kind of when they feel inspired, putting some, you know, making a record that feels good at the time. But there isn't, it's a little bit more of a, hobby than it is a vocation um at this point and they're doing it because they love it rather than you know having having a not that they didn't love it before but i think there's a little bit more of a a commercial and professional drive and kind of momentum that's maintained through all the other eras yeah so those yeah. are my eras Roth. i'd love to hear kind of uh how you think about it and and pepper you with my questions I think there's just one era. It's the rush era and it's the 21st <laughs> century. It's actually the 23rd century, but, uh, but we'll discuss that in the 24th century. No. So, um, I, you know, I think we covered a lot of the, the details, so we don't have to spend much time on mine, but I, I took a little bit more of a non-traditional approach to the eras and I didn't do it just to be contrary, right? I, there's nothing more annoying than someone who's contrary for the sake of being contrary, but it, it's, it really was just that I never really thought about it until we decided to do this podcast. So when I actually sat down and thought about what are the real rush eras, I realized, okay, well, typically we, we break them down on albums, but I wanted to look at the band as a whole from their formation in 1968 until they disbanded officially in 2015, 2016. Um, and so my first era uh, starts with 2016 in it and it goes through just one album which was the eponymous rush album right so i call that the birth era and this is them hanging out in their you know parents basements with like john rutsey's older brother saying hey dude why don't you call yourself rush right sure man right so it's it's sort of like that the birth of the band and it culminates to me with the recording of their you know i think it was three signals that they recorded like not fade away and um, uh, there was another song, uh, I, I can't recall. I mentioned it on the next episode. So tune into the next episode and you'll, you'll hear, um, and then it culminates with the recording of the rush album, them getting a, a recording contract and going on their first tour, uh, who, I, I don't know did they tour with kiss on that first tour. I'm not sure if it was the first tour. It was one of their early tours though. They were, they were with kiss. I think that's so awesome that they toured with kiss, by the way, that's <laughs> like, there was like a match. That's like peanut butter and chocolate. Um, so, so that's my first era. Um, it goes back to really early rush. And the reason why I did that is because the second era, it, you, you, like for me, like Neil Peart joining the band is such a seismic event in Rush's history and such a consequential event that it needs to be its own ushering in its own era. So the second era I have is what I'm calling adolescence, right? And it really only, it's, it's one year, 
1975 and includes two albums right uh and those albums are um you know fly by night and caris of steel and i can even pinpoint it in caris of steel it's like halfway through caris of steel they go into the next uh era right so the first three tracks bestial day lakeside or i think i'm going bald in lakeside park are uniquely of the adolescent era right it includes lyrics uh, as deep as i think i'm going bald um but then you get into you know the the necromancer you get into their long sort of rock operas which i think is like the really good it's like a that that album i mean i'll, I'll get into it uh, what i think about it when we get to that album but it's like it's like I, I don't know what a good analogy is. It's sort of like, you know, the first three tracks are the appetizers. And then like the last two tracks are like the main course. Right. And you're having yeah. like an experience, like experiential dining. Um, so, so that, that adolescent era is really fly by night and the first half of Caris of steel. Then we get into what I'm calling the exploration era. And this is where like, wait a second, Rob, are you yeah. splitting an era halfway in a record? I, I am. And you can sue me if you this don't like is, that. This is, I love it. I love it. I love it. Granular. <laughs> you're, you're, it's surgical, your era. Well, it solves, it solves a, a key problem, which is like, where do you fit those, you know? And, and yeah. I think this like speaks to how quickly Rush was evolving at this time too, right? They were evolving yeah. in real time, like right before our eyes. Um, and then the, the next era is what I'm calling exploration. And you mentioned La Villa Strangiato. I think this is that, I think that is peak exploration rush, right? Okay. Where they're, I mean, it's the closest thing to jazz that rush has on any of their albums. Right. I mean, it actually has a jazz sequence in it. There's some like jazz bass solos. Right. Um, so, so the exploration, uh, period for me, um, is up through it, 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 it goes up through um, all the worlds of stage, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then we have uh, the next era I'm calling the application era. And what do I mean by application? It's the application of their exploration, right? It starts with what has become the quintessential Rush album, which is uh, Moving Pictures. And I think that is the first time where we're seeing Rush become, this is the band they've always meant to be. Everything that came oh. before it. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, just why I have a question. You said that you think Moving Pictures is the quintessential Rush album. I, now, I, I didn't. I didn't say. I think. I think that's what's become known as the quintessential Rush album. Oh yeah, see, that's interesting. I just think that um, it seems to me as as time has progressed and more distance, um, we have more distance between kind of Rush's career and and today. I feel like 2112 has kind of become the album that most people refer to. Um, but maybe that's wrong. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's wrong. I, I, I do think for a long time, moving pictures really was seen as the, 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 I think it was the commercially at the time, the most successful rush record and certainly yeah. has the most commercially successful song on it and Tom Sawyer. But, um, well, I mean, we talked earlier about how that first era is them like finding their way, traveling. Yeah. So for, to, to continue that, you know, geographic sort of analogy, I would say, in my opinion, 2112 is when they found their bearing, right? Where they're like, okay, yeah. we, we know what direction we want to go in now. And we're going to follow this, 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 comp, this uh, heading. Yep. And I think that moving pictures is when they finally arrived and they're like, okay, this is rush. This yeah. is, this is who we are. And then they started to apply 
new technologies and this is when they progress and they and they kind of like again one of the one of the themes that is coming out in this conversation is that rush is a pendulum right they keep going back and forth right uh they they get really into i'm assuming and and you know what if you look at someone like getty lee and his like collection of baseballs right it it seems Mm -hmm. that the guys in rush don't do anything halfway right they the neil will if he wants to get into a book or literature he goes in if he wants to go on a motorcycle trip he gets like fully into it if getty wants to get in collecting something like he will get into it if alex wants to be a goofball and party he will do that so much so he'll get arrested and it will make the national news so i think that these guys don't do anything halfway and i think that's really comes to light when you're breaking it down by era so in this application era they're applying new technologies to this this format of the band that is Rush, and I think this is where they really, you know, the songs become much more complex. And and like I said earlier, there's a song on on Power Windows, which uh, I'll I'll reveal it on the Power Windows episode that I think is sort of peak Rush. Oh, like, I can't wait. The I complexity of the songwriting it has guitars, it has synths, it's drums. Even if you get down to the individual like instrumental instrument instrumentation of it, like it's like peak Getty, peak Alex, peak Neil, right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, I think what you know, as the pendulum sort of came to a head at the end of this era, uh, they they go to the next era, which I'm calling the back to basics era, which is, and I think we both agree that this era begins with Presto. Uh, and it ends with counterparts. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's that it's sort of the end. Um, we just discussed this like five minutes ago, so I'm not going to get into it, but I will say, and this is something that may be a, a controversial or hot take. I think Rush's final album is counterparts, right? I think like the, the, uh-huh. the last like truly rush album where they're a band where they're cranking out albums every year, where they're like a, a, it's a concerted effort. Like, I think they, they sort of achieve that with counterparts. Yeah. Uh, and the other reason why I think it's the band's last album is because especially with the the personal tragedy in Neil Peart's life and his taking a extended break from the band. Um, I think the band was never the same. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, because I, I yeah. do have a lot of complimentary things to say about their later albums. Um, but I think that the band as they existed from, you know, fly by night, like fly by night to, 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 um, counterparts to me is like rush. Like that's, that's the, that's the heart. That's like the, the artichoke heart of rush. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the first album is the stem and everything else is sort of like the leaves around it, but like the heart yeah. of rush is fly by night to, um, to counterparts. Yeah. So, um, the next era is what I'm calling the abyss. Right. Um, because it really, it really was, I mean, for the band yeah. Yeah. for Neil Peart in particular, it was a very dark time of, of personal growth, of scarring, of healing. Uh, and, and this, this era ends with an album that is a, a with the original album that was recorded of vapor trails was a sonic abyss. I mean, it's, if you had to put a a sound to like a musical sound to what an abyss would sound like. That's the original version of vapor trails. I don't know if you can find, if you don't have the original version, I think they buried it. They got rid of it. Uh, very dark booming, um, uh, album, right? So, and, so and it, you, it's a, you know, um, when you talk about vapor trails, it was produced by a guy named Paul Northfield. Um, mm-hmm. another British producer, 
um, well known for for working with a number of kind of late, um, I guess you'd call it second or third wave progressive bands. So Dream Theater, Queensryche, Porcupine Tree. These are all kind of later, you know, side. I don't know if it's second or third wave, but later wave prog bands. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it sort of caps the abyss period. Right. But it, mm -hmm. but it also is a rebirth, I guess you call it rebirth. Cause I, I had birth was the first era. This could be rebirth. <laughs> um, because it, it, you know, they had ghost rider was one of the tracks on it, which was a very personal song, obviously to Neil Peart. Uh, he wrote the book also called ghost rider, which was a great book. I mean, it's, it's like, um, you, you know, if, if you ever experience, this is just some un unsolicited advice, but if, especially if you're someone who, um, whether you're a person of faith or not, I think both of these books are, are sort of chicken soup for the soul. Um, if you're ever going through a hard time, uh, there are two books that I think I will certainly read touch wood that it doesn't happen uh, at least anytime soon. Uh, one is Neil Peart's ghost rider, just going through the experience of healing from, you know, just this unthinkable tragedy, losing his daughter and wife within a matter of months. Um, but also there's, uh, 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 Tim Russert wrote a book called big Russ and me, uh, which also has a lot of life learnings from his father. Um, so those two books, unsolicited advice, I don't know, hopefully it makes the cut in this podcast, but that you should read. So the abyss is this era. It ends with, um, uh, uh, vapor trails. I don't know when they remixed vapor trails and re-released it. Um, but that was part of the re the, the final era of rush, which I am calling, let me, let me get to it. Um, personal growth, right? Yeah. I might even call this rebirth, right? So that's 2002 to 2011. Now what happens in this era of rush? Well, first of all, they have far fewer releases, right? So, I mean, there's like five years between their last three albums. So vapor trails comes out in 2002. Um, then you have snakes and arrows, which comes out in 2007, which I was actually working at universal music when this was released, uh, that came out in Atlantic. Um, and then, uh, uh, clockwork angels comes out in 2012. So, so these, these albums, sorry, I had a little bit of uh, interference there. Uh, these albums to me, um, especially snakes and arrows and clockwork angels, um, are much more like literary, right. Than they are musical. I think they're yeah. really, uh, Neil Peart is really driving the creative direction on these albums. I may be wrong. So this is just from a fan's point of view. Um, I feel that they're really Neil Peart's sort of like outlets, his return to quote normal life, um, getting it's sort of a, a sign of things to come where the band's looking to wind it down. Neil Peart's going to be embarking upon a writing career, you know, writing science fiction novels and whatnot. And I think the band at this stage in their life are like, you know, we have nothing to prove. We've yeah. got our lives. We want to, you know, spend time with our families. We still love the band. We still have this camaraderie as a band, but like, let's, let's do music when we find it inspiring. Like there's no rush, pardon the pun to, yeah. <laughs> to release an album. And, and I think that this last era and, and, and to be sure the the whole, you know, studio discography of rush ends with, the the last track on on uh, clockwork angels the garden right and i don't want to jump ahead to the garden but i i will say you know again to give it personal context the last time i saw rush play live was on that tour 
and it was at the universal amphitheater in universal city which is no longer exists it's harry potter land now um but it was a unique venue in that you could be at the stage level like in the in the in the bleachers um and be like like very close to the stage and we had like center front row of that like that next level up so we were like it was the perfect vantage point to see rush play and you can't get it in any other venue you certainly can't get it at like a hockey arena or or where, which is what their typical venue is and i remember the garden being the last track they played on that tour and it was just you know if you listen to the lyrics of it right it is like to me it's like the it's like the ultimate like last track like it's just yeah. it just it, it encapsulates um i know it's 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 you know the story uh, of 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 um uh uh, uh clockwork angels but it's it encapsulates to me you know rush their entire career and i almost yeah. feel it's like neil pert saying goodbye with mm. that song not 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 personally but as a yeah. band yeah. I, I feel that the garden was an intentional this is our last song off our last album we're saying goodbye now um and and that was the last time i saw rush and and i did have tickets last minute tickets to see their last album you know their last gig in los angeles their very last live performance. and i didn't go to it right because i didn't feel like dealing with i mean yeah i i, I regret it but i didn't go to it because they were like nosebleeds and like i didn't feel like dealing yeah. with it whatever it was but yeah. i don't regret it because my last imagery gonna... of rush live was just it, you couldn't top it like you just yeah. couldn't top it yeah yeah you had a great last experience I, 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 well, I'm really looking forward to actually listening to these records and especially given what you've said about Clockwork Angels, I'm, I'm, uh, it's going to be cool to listen to a uh, new Rush material for the first time for me in what, 20 years or something. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to go digging deep into those, into those albums. I think one of the things when you think about the eras of Rush, just the fact that we can have an in-depth conversation about this topic is pretty amazing. I think one of the coolest things about Rush, and over the course of the next many podcast episodes, we will go into excruciating detail about all of this, but this band has evolved so much over such a long period of time and such a huge body of work. And there are not a lot of bands that have, number one, stuck around as long as rush had number two had had were as productive as rush was for as long a period of time as they were and number three evolved so much with what i think is by and large success i you know i have my preferences about which albums and which eras i prefer um but you know, I, so I'll, I'll say I don't love I don't like the skinny ties era as much as I like the space kimono era um, personally. Uh, yeah, but they they did something within the skinny ties era that I think is mostly successful. You know, across all of these eras, there are songs and and even records that are are not as you know don't hold up as well there are some songs that i will argue are real stinkers and shouldn't have been included on records and and rush would say the same thing about a couple of uh songs across their their career as i'm sure any creative um person you know who's who's not a complete egotist would would say about about their output but it really is amazing how much these three people 
have been able to um, stick together and evolve together creatively and continue to be productive over such a long period of time. It's a pretty and, and remain band. friends, remain so close. As yeah, well. remain. There, there, you know, there were there was there was one personnel change in the history of the band, and that was after the first record. And there were no other personnel changes. Think no. about any band. I mean, a, a band that you know, Rafi, you and I have talked you, about. You two goes back even further though. Like, I mean, you two, they're like like middle school, high school, the original lineup has always been U2. Yeah, that, that is true. And I, I, actually U2 is an interesting candidate for, you know, it, next, assuming yeah, anybody, one. anybody listens to, <laughs> to backtracking, you know, what's the next band that we're going to cover. I think we've talked about Genesis. The, I think U2 is another really good example. Genesis is a band that has existed for a tremendously long period of time or did exist for a tremendously long period of time, evolved a tremendous lot over the course of their career and had creative um, highlights and lowlights and and substantially different styles of music over the course of that career however the personnel for genesis changed a lot over that period of time right and so in some ways i think you could make the argument it isn't even really the same band you know the band that did nursery crime is not the same band that did um I don't know. One of the weekend yeah, dance. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, there's dr- really just not that much similar it, just in terms of personnel. So yeah. the, so the stylistic and creative changes are not as surprising. Whereas rush, this is, you know, these are the same guys playing more or less the same instruments, you know, yeah. uh, over, a, over a 30 year period, but they really evolved a lot, which I think is, um, an amazing and almost perfectly unique thing within the history of, of rock music. Well, and, and there's, there's, there's a time, and I know you probably feel the same. And I know a lot of our listeners who are rush fans um, feel the same way. There, there are different seasons, different moods, states of mind where you want to reach for an album or a track from one of these eras. Right. And I think that um, especially as I've, I've, you know, gotten older, um, I appreciate the, the, the lyrics of rush as a, almost like a secular Bible of sorts, right? There, there are situations you encounter feelings, emotions, you know, family politics, you know, work, what's going on in the world. And, and you can find answers or if not an answer, you can find a sympathetic tale, um, in the lyrics of rush, right. And, in and, and, and to a remarkable extent too. Yeah, I, I, I also uh, very personally, I think one of the things about this project that we're doing together, Rafi, that really has me excited is there is a, I wish I, I wish I had the capability to kind of pull the, the neuroscience uh, to the front of my mind really quickly, but, but I've, I've heard, I'm probably going to misstate it, but I've heard that there are, you know, there is a period of time in your life in your kind of early teens through early twenties where your brain is literally changing in such a way that explains why the music that you dive into during that time ends up being the most influential music and the the music that you kind of remember for your entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, Rush is definitely one of those bands. I dove into Rush with you and with some of our other friends so deeply in my early and kind of mid-teens that 
I, I feel like I know it all so well. And it is so emotionally evocative for me, not just kind of lyrically and musically, but just kind of from a memory perspective, I, I can put on signals and have this difficult to kind of, um, difficult to 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 uh identify the specific memory that it's evoking but it gives me this incredible sense of kind of reminiscence and and um it's just it's always a it's it's always a fun and emotional kind of experience to go back through these records so doing it to you now that we're like old men are doing it with you now that we're like old men going back through all this together i think it's going to be really fun because but but that's interesting those feelings because one of the things you didn't say is nostalgic right and 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 i'm not at all a nostalgic person i hate nostalgia right i it's, it's it's depressing to me i'm i would rather think about what's next to the future right um, yet rush is, it's something familiar, like it does take you back, but at the same time, it's very present. It's not, it's not like you're regressing into like, Oh, how I felt when I was 12, 14, 15 years old, you're, you're, it, it does evoke some of those, you know, feelings of nostalgia. But when you listen to the lyrics, right, they're very cerebral. Like you, you're always discovering something new that your perspective in life, you know, has the lyrics mean something a little bit different or, um, and this happens constantly, you listen to a lyric and it finally dawns on you what the lyric is talking about. And you're like, Oh my God, like I've been listening to this song for years and, and it's something completely new that I've discovered, um, in the lyrics that I never thought of before. Right. Yeah. So that's what's, um, to me is why rush remains relevant. And it really just thrills me to see, you know, videos of like, you know, 10 year olds, you know, drumming to rush songs or playing bass to rush songs or guitar, whatever they are, um, discovering who they are and really appreciating what is a a timeless catalog of music and and words and lyrics. No, it's absolutely true. I, um, I am nostalgic to, to quote Noah Baumbach from kicking and screaming. One of my, one of my favorite movies, great movie. I'm, I'm nostalgic about things that happened yesterday. So I, (laughs) I, I am, I am nostalgic and I definitely will feel some nostalgia as I go through these, these albums. But what I, what I will say as I've been listening to rush again, quite a lot, um, again, in prep for doing this with you is that I don't, there may be, there, there may be many people who would disagree with me on this, but I don't feel like the music is dated i feel like rush was in most situations so unique and apart from kind of the mainstream that they always just sound like rush they never really sound like anything else and so it's a little bit harder to date them if that makes sense you can date you can date the albums relative to another rush album but it's really difficult to kind of listen to permanent waves and and say like oh this sounds exactly like all the other records that came out that year it it just it it doesn't you know they never do yeah the only thing i can really date them on uh is is probably like on like it's funny it's a quintessential rush album but like um like camera eye for example like there's some songs where there is this very and i don't know if it's a canadian thing because you always hear it in like (laughs) canadian programming from that era like late 70s early 80s but there is this sort of moog synth kind of sound yeah. that that that's the only time where like to me it, it's dated to not just an era but like canada 
Yeah. Right? And sorry, Canadians, <laughs> but like, I, I, you know what I'm talking about if you, if you know that era. Um, yeah. Like if you watch like a science show from like 1979, 1980 yeah. from like the CBC, like you'll, you'll hear those type of scents. Right? Yeah. But, but I, even like in the skinny tie era, the scents are not like, they don't, they don't evoke the eighties necessarily for me, even though they're very eighties, they're, they're very timeless. Yeah. It's interesting. You can really listen to, well, I mean, we're going to dig into this, but I think yeah. in the skinny tie area, uh, era, you can, you can hear the influence of early eighties, new wave bands, but the way that it's kind of, you know, to, to make a pun synthesized by rush and output it doesn't end up sounding it. It's not like, you know, you listen to you listen to grace under pressure and it sounds like the fix or, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, it, it, it just, it, it doesn't sound quite, quite the same as any of these other bands. It just sounds singular. And so I think it, it does give it a, uh, many of these songs a timeless quality. Now, Again, as we go track by track, there are a number of songs that I think we can pick out and say, yeah, this was kind of a, th this one didn't quite get there. or This one really doesn't hold up. I've definitely experienced that in, in some of my re-listens, but the, but the songs that work, work just as well today as they did 20, 30 years ago, in my opinion. Um, and in some cases better, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to going through everything, um, in detail. Well, on, on that note, uh, join us next time where we go through Rush's eponymous album, Rush, uh, where we, we get into it, right? Yeah. And check out the show notes. Uh, we will have links to reference material. We'll have links to Spotify playlists that Roth and I put together for those of you who want to kind of have a cheat sheet and not listen to every record, not listen to every song, but um, want to get a sense of the progression of the band over the course of these eras. As always, thank you for listening to the Backtracking Podcast Rush Edition. Dan, why don't you tell the folks where they can find us online? Folks, you can find us online at Instagram or X. Our handle, our username is at Backtracking Rocks, R-O-X. That's at Backtracking Rocks. We want to hear from you, so follow. Send us a message with a correction, a request, or just some kind of love poem. And spread the word. <laughs> <laughs>